So, Matthew chapter 3, and we see Jesus' example to how to overcome temptation by the Spirit and by the Word of God. Now, that's going to be focused more uh, upon in the fourth chapter, but in the third chapter, we see an important pivotal event take place that Matthew describes for us. And we want to learn from Jesus as he approached baptism, the baptism of John, how we should view obedience to God. And I think this sets up an important principle for us as we look to this text. And what we find as we look at chapter 3, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, is this. The perfect Son of God is our example for obedience. And He is that perfect example of what it is to obey God. So what we need to do and what we learn from Jesus is this. We pursue obedience by doing what God wants us to do. In other words, not looking at what I think is best, not looking at what I might hope to accomplish, but looking to God and saying, what would God have me do in this situation? Now, look at the 13th verse. The context of this passage is the ministry of John the Baptist. And when we come to verse 13, this is what the Scripture shares with us. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan, to John. Now, when we think about that trek from Galilee to Jordan, it's about a 65-mile trek, the region where John was doing his ministry. And we think in terms of, hey, 65 miles, I hop in the car, I go 80 miles per hour, and I get there and nothing flat because the interstates take me there. And it's no big deal. 65 miles, that's just a little quick jump. In Jesus' day, not the case. A great deal of effort would have to be made to travel 65 miles, probably by foot, over mountainous terrain. And so Jesus was going in obedience to what God was calling him to do. And his purpose, we find in this 13th verse, was to be baptized by John. Now, Why would the perfect Son of God go to be baptized by John, who was doing a baptism for people to confess their sin and prepare for the kingdom? Jesus had no sin to confess. So why in the world did he go to John? And what we find as we look at this story is Jesus' baptism accomplishes two things. First of all, when we think of baptism, as we learned last week, baptism is a way of identification with a community. We practice baptism in our church to identify people with the community of believers, those who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ and have entered into a personal relationship with Him. So that is that identification aspect of baptism. But Jesus was coming to identify with a group of people who were, yes, recognizing their own sin, but they were doing it for a purpose. And the purpose of that identification, that idea was, we are preparing for the kingdom. So what Jesus is doing in coming to submit to baptism is coming to identify people who are making themselves ready for the kingdom of God. They have come to identify with others who are saying the kingdom of God is our purpose. We are looking to it. We are waiting for it. And Jesus is identifying with them. But there's a second reason for Jesus coming to be baptized by John. And that reason is this. It would provide 
a crystal clear statement from God that Jesus is the Messiah. We're going to see that a little bit later in this third chapter. There is this identification that's saying, I am more than just a prophet. I am more than just a seeker of spiritual things. I am the Son of God. So both of those aspects are important aspects to Jesus' baptism. Now, when we come to this passage, we find that in the 14th verse, John's response to Jesus is understandable. He says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now, I find what really stands out to me in this 14th verse is the contrast with the way Jesus responded to the Pharisees and the Sadducees a little bit earlier in the third chapter. These so-called spiritual leaders of Israel had come and Jesus rejected the no, or excuse me, John rejected the notion of baptizing these spiritual leaders. Why? Because discernment told him these are not on the up and up. They are not coming here to be baptized for the proper reason with the proper motivation. So John refused their baptism. But here, when Jesus comes on the scene, his discernment tells him the opposite. He looks at Jesus and he says, here is a righteous man. Here is one who ought to be baptizing me because I know I'm a sinner, and he is not. And so his response, although understandable, would have stopped him from accomplishing what God had marked out for him to do if he had just followed his reasoning. And you know, I find when it comes to obedience, isn't it easy to second-guess God? Isn't it easy to go into our theological grid or go into our preferences or go into a thought process that we've sort of run through our filter and our mind and say this is the way things ought to be done and then when God comes along and says something in his word and points us to a proper course, we push back because we think we can do better. We can make a better decision. This is what initially was the response of John. But look at Jesus' response in verse 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So where John's initial reaction is, (laughs) this doesn't make sense. You ought to be baptizing me, not I you. Uh, Jesus shares with him the purpose in it. And in the 15th verse, he says, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness? There are a couple of aspects to righteousness that we need to think about. One aspect of righteousness is like what Paul talks about in his writings, and that is our spiritual standing with God. Are we right with God as far as salvation? That's an important understanding of righteousness, but it's not the only understanding of righteousness. Righteousness very simply means to do what is right. And anytime we do what God has marked out for us, what God has called us to do, when we do that, we are accomplishing ethical righteousness. We are doing the right thing in God's eyes. And so what Jesus is really saying to John is, look, 
What's important for you to understand is what we are about to do is right in God's eyes. God has called us to this. Let's be obedient. Let's, what, let's do what God has, has marked out for us. You know, it's so important that as believers, we take that same view. That we look at what is right in God's eyes and not in our own eyes. That we understand that God has a purpose and plan that is unfolding. And sometimes we will understand the purpose and plan of God and sometimes we won't. Sometimes we'll be confused by it. Sometimes we might understand, as a matter of fact, in our sinful thoughts, we might even say God's holding out on us, keeping me from doing what I want to do. And all of that is wrong. You know, when I was a little kid, I had a fixation with the light socket and a paper clip. And I looked at that and I said, hey, that paper clip will neatly fit into that slot on that plug. That is really neat. And mom saw me starting to go for it and she said, no, slapped my hands, took away the paper clip. I had a solution. I know where the paper clips are stored. So I went and got another paper clip, and when mom wasn't looking, stuck it in the socket, and then I realized why she didn't want me to stick the paper clip in the socket. I felt like my shoulder was going to be jerked out of place because I thought I knew better than mom. And I think now as an adult, how many times do we do that with God? We look at what God would have us do. We look at what he has written in his word. We look at what he commands us to do. And in our foolish thinking, sometimes we think we know better. We need to, like John, do what God calls us to do. He's being called by God the Father through Jesus to do this baptism, and he needed to respond in obedience, and he did. Now, as we come to verses 16 through 17... We find something else. Pleasing God and being used of Him is the goal of obedience. Obedience is about God and not about us. We are so good at making things all about us, aren't we? When we come to this 16th verse, look at what the Word of God says. And when Jesus was baptized, He immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment. I'm going to take a rabbit trail. Last week, we saw John was baptizing in the Jordan River, that people went into the river and came out of the river after being baptized. And the same can be said of Jesus. Jesus went to John. They went down into the river Jesus was baptized in the river, and when he came up out of the water, something very special took place, and we'll get to that. But again, I want to emphasize what the Bible teaches as far as the biblical mode of baptism. When we find baptism mentioned in Scripture, it is mentioned as baptism that is by immersion, in other words, going under the water and coming up out of the water. And so this is the case with Jesus. It's very clear here that he went up from the water, verse 16, and then something very special happened. Look at what it says. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. Now, when we look in Scripture, there are unique situations where God sort of rolls back the way to looking into heaven, and someone is given a glimpse into heaven itself. There are only some unique situations where this took place. For instance, when Moses 
went to Mount Sinai and he was receiving the Ten Commandments and he had fasted for a time. He was given a glimpse of the afterglow of God. He was also given this glimpse of God. And then also Elijah. He had seen the heavens rolled back. And we see other prophets who describe the heavens being rolled back. And then we also see, even in the book of Revelation, some instances where heaven is described as being rolled back, where we get this glimpse into heaven itself. And when Jesus saw this, look at what the text goes on to say. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now this was a visible manifestation of the Spirit of God in the form of a dove. We aren't quite sure from Matthew's account who saw it. We know Jesus saw it. It was a confirmation of his ministry, and it was a confirmation of who he was. We also know at this point in the other Gospels, John became fully aware of who Jesus is and what his purpose and his mission were. But this was a clear designation for all because it's recorded in the eternal Word of God that God was identifying Jesus uniquely by the Spirit of God descending from heaven that had been peeled back and opened up and that it came to rest upon Jesus. What's the significance of that? In the Old Testament, when a person was commissioned to do the work of God, the Scripture often speaks of the Spirit of God coming upon them. And they would do amazing things when the Spirit of God would come upon them. He was empowering them. He was directing them. He was working with them. This is an imagery of what's happening with Jesus, but there's more beyond that. You see, when we see this, not only are we seeing God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ, but we're seeing God the Spirit coming from heaven and resting upon Him. So that's two members of the Trinity. And then we also see something else, the Father speaking in verse 17, saying, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, God the Father. So here is the Trinity, God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father, together. They are distinct from one another, and yet one God. The Trinity is a complicated doctrine, but it's laid out for us right here in this passage of Scripture where we can see each part of the Trinity manifested, separate, distinct, and yet one. When Jesus had the Spirit of God descend upon Him, it was, again, a statement about Old Testament prophecy and what happens when this Spirit rests on Jesus. For example, we find in Isaiah, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. There are a lot of parallels between this passage and what we see going on here in Matthew chapter 3. But then it goes on to say, He will, or excuse me, I will put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So a clear identification of Jesus as the Messiah. This was the purpose as well of the baptism of Jesus. And he went in complete obedience. 
But we see something else as we move into the fourth chapter. When we come to chapter 4, we find that we prove our obedience by resisting temptation. It's easy to follow God when we're not tempted. It's easy to be obedient to God when there isn't the temptation to do otherwise. But how do we face temptation and overcome it and stay faithful to what God calls us to do in His Word? That's what we're going to see as we go into this text and as we look at Jesus facing temptation after this extraordinary spiritual event. By the way, let me say this. Many times when we have experienced a truly profound and meaningful spiritual experience, Satan tries to throw a monkey wrench in the works. He tries to bring us down after something spectacular has happened. We see it many times in Scripture. We find that Elijah, when he had the contest with the prophets of Baal, remember that? And he prevailed. What did he do? He immediately ran for his life and hid and asked God to kill him because he had Jezebel, the wicked queen of Israel, pursuing him, wanting to take his life. Let me share this with you. When you go through a meaningful spiritual experience, expect to have testing by the evil one. He does not want to see a fully engaged follower of God. Something else we see. When we begin to serve God in a meaningful way, in a unique way, Satan often tries to stop that process. What we find in Matthew chapter 4 will be the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's that transitional period from these years of silence, 30 years, where Jesus isn't even mentioned in the book of Matthew, from the time they moved to Nazareth to the time he went to Jordan. But Jesus is getting ready to embark on serving God, on sharing truths concerning the kingdom of God. And so Satan is doing everything that he can to stop him from doing that. When we launch into ministry, Satan is either going to seek to discourage us or to disqualify us from serving, and we need to be wary. We need to be careful. We need to overcome the temptation that he throws our way. Now, what do we find in Jesus' temptations? There are three temptations that are mentioned here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And the first temptation has to do with personal comfort. And what we learn from Jesus is this. Our personal comfort shouldn't drive our decisions. Let me say this. It is so easy for us to be caught up in the idea of personal comfort. I want to do things that don't really cost me. I want to do things that aren't going to really cause me to exert myself. I want to do things that give me a physical feeling of fullness rather than looking to what God calls me to do, being obedient to Him. When we come to Satan's temptation of Jesus, look at what we find here in this fourth chapter. In verse 1 it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And look at this purpose, to be tested by the devil. 
Now, sometimes we have the misconception that, hey, if I'm following the Spirit of God, everything's going to be smooth, and there aren't going to be any problems, and everything's just going to go right along. I won't have any issues, and nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is being led by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. Why? For the purpose of testing His obedience. That testing will prove the sinlessness of Christ. It's an important step in authenticating that Jesus is God and man and that He lives a perfect life. Look at what it goes on to say in verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You know, the Bible sometimes has some great understatements, doesn't it? Uh, If you can imagine fasting 40 days and 40 nights and not being hungry, there's something wrong with you. And so this was the case with Jesus. He's fasting, and what is the purpose of fasting? Fasting was a time for us to deny ourselves physical needs in order to focus with clarity on what's going on spiritually. So here is Jesus taking this time to fast in preparation for His ministry. And at the conclusion of that fast, He's hungry. And let me share this with you. Satan is no gentleman. He doesn't look at us when we're vulnerable And say, oh, you know, they've had a rough day or a rough time. Maybe I'd better back off just a little bit because I I don't want to take advantage of them when they're weak. No. That's blood in the water for Satan, man. He smells that and he says, let's go after them and let's make life even more difficult for them. While they're vulnerable, perhaps I can get them to crumble. This is what he's trying to do with Jesus. And look at what the scripture says, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, that seems reasonable, doesn't it? Jesus is hungry. He has the power to take a stone and turn it into bread. I've taken bread and turned it into stone (laughs) by overcooking it or leaving it on the counter too long. But this was a miracle to do the opposite, right? This was Satan coming to him and saying, prove yourself to me by fulfilling this need. And I suspect the area around Jordan would have had stones that are probably shaped pretty similar to a loaf of bread that they would have made in the ancient Near East. Don't, Don't you just sort of imagine that he had laid out some of those appetizing-looking stones that looked an awful lot like a loaf of bread, and as a visual, showed those to Jesus, knowing that he's hungry, hoping that he would get him to cave. Now, what was wrong with Jesus using his power to turn those stones into bread? I mean, he had the power. Why not use it? Here's the reason. When Jesus took on human flesh, he chose to set aside the independent use of his divine attributes. In other words, his powers were set aside so that he would live as a human being here on the earth and face all of the struggles and all of the temptations that we face. So had Jesus turned those stones into bread, 
he would have cheated. He would have been going outside what the father had mapped out for him, and he would have taken it upon himself to do what he wanted to do to either satisfy his hunger or to satisfy a dare that was put up to him by Satan. And neither of those options or opportunities was right. So Jesus refused to be drawn in. You know, sometimes we can fall into a situational ethic. We look at sin and we excuse it. We say, well, I was, and then plug in your favorite excuse, and that's why I did that thing that God told me not to do. It's wrong. And it leads us to a place outside of the righteousness of God. So what we need to do is be obedient, and yes, be obedient during those times when it's the toughest to be obedient, because that honors God. Look at what Jesus does in response to Satan, verse 4. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, what Jesus is saying to Satan is this. The spiritual supersedes the physical. The passage of Scripture that Jesus quotes is from the book of Deuteronomy. And it's a response to the people of Israel who were grumbling about not eating in the wilderness and complaining about God. And during that time, some of them were saying, I wish we could go back to the flesh pots of Egypt because I'm hungry. They were leaving a focus on God and a dependence on God, and they were focusing on anything else that would satisfy their immediate need or desire. And what Jesus is bringing out in this text is we should never buy into that. We find our life in the word that comes out of the mouth of God, not in immediate gratification, not in looking to things that we can do apart from God, independently refusing to be obedient to Him. So that was the first temptation. And what we're going to see is this. As we go through these temptations, we're going to see that in each temptation where Satan speaks to Jesus about something to do, Jesus responds with what? The Word of God. And what we learn from this is profound for us. Any believer led by the Spirit of God and using the Word of God to guide them is more than a match for Satan. Jesus demonstrates this perfectly in this text. Here's something else that we see. The second temptation. Sorry about that long word there for you, you uh, folks that are filling in the bulletin. I hope I left you enough room uh, to put that in, but it's the only word I could think of that started with a P. Presumptuousness about what God must do is to be avoided. Now, what do we mean by presumptuous? Being presumptuous means that we look at something and we make God's mind up for him. Rather than looking to say, what would you do, God? We look and say, this is what you ought to do, God. 
Now, I'm sure none of you ever cross that line or fall into that sin, but isn't that an easy one to cross? God, you should do it this way. God, you should act this way to bring about this result. What Satan is tempting Jesus with is that very thing. Look at what it says in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of a temple. Uh, there, there was a high point on the temple. This is where Satan brings Jesus. Now, we don't know whether he brought him physically or whether it was a vision sort of a thing. We don't know. But what we do know is this. This was a temptation to get Jesus to do something, again, using his divine power, but also in presuming that God would do something by taking a passage of Scripture out of context. Look at what it says in verse 6. Satan said to him, so this is Satan speaking to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. In other words, step off into air and trust that God will break all of the laws of physics and allow you to come through safely. And then he quotes from a passage of Scripture, the 91st Psalm. And this is what he says. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, what he's saying to Jesus is, you know, God's Word says that if you intentionally try to harm yourself, he's locked in by his Word to protect you from harming yourself. It was a lie. And it was a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation of the Scripture that he's quoting, for that Scripture goes on to say some important words that he will watch over you and give his angels command concerning you in, your, in all your ways. And what that means is this, as you go about life, he will protect you until the conclusion that God has for you. That's what the passage means. What Satan tries to get Jesus to do is something spectacular. Assuming that God will care for him even when he places himself in personal danger. It is usurping a position that God has by saying, God, in order for you to prove yourself genuine, you have to do this. And when you do, then we'll know that you're faithful. Sometimes I hear Christians do that very thing. We construct some intricate process in our minds, and we say, God, if you're really genuine, you'll do this to prove yourself. And really what we need to do is stop and ask ourselves, who am I to tell God to jump through a hoop in order to prove himself to me? This is what Satan was asking Jesus to do, to prove himself to be the Son of God and to prove God's Word to be true. And we should never construct that kind of scenario for God. In fact, Jesus answers once again with Scripture when he says this in verse 7. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Let me tell you something. People will often misquote Scripture, pull it out of context. We have to compare Scripture with Scripture. 
We have to make sure that this idea that's being presented is supported by the context of that passage and by the context of the entire Bible. And what happens is this. Sometimes as Christians, we fall prey to people who teach us things by ripping passages out of context and giving them to us and saying, here's what God's Word says, and it says absolutely nothing of the kind. We've heard this illustration of the football coach who decided that he needed direction from the Scripture as to how to have a winning season. I've often heard that applied to the Bears, but I won't go there. And basically, what he does is he opens the Bible, brings his finger down for direction, and it says right where he lands, Judas went out and hanged himself. That can't be right, so I'll bring it down somewhere else, and he comes down and it says, go ye and do likewise. (laughs) You know, that's pulling the Bible out of context. That's not what we're to do with God's truth. We are to see the truth of the Word of God as something that leads us and, again, view it in the full context of the passage, view it in the full context of the Scripture. And this is what Jesus does with Satan. Finally, we come to the third temptation. Personal glory should never usurp God's glory. Again and again and again, as we go through the Gospels, We see Jesus' purpose and goal was to bring glory to the Father. So here, Satan is tempting him in a different way. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, first of all, here is the created saying to the Creator, worship me. Utter foolishness when you think about it. Think about the, the gall that Satan has to say to the Creator, fall down and worship me. Now, Satan is the god of this age. In other words, this world system worships him and follows him. But really what he's doing is, is, is subtle if you aren't really carefully thinking. Jesus came to establish his kingdom on earth, right? You know what Satan was promising him? You can have your kingdom without the cross. The last thing Satan wants to see is a savior. So if he can disqualify Jesus by getting him to worship him, he disqualifies him. And so he's baiting him into disobedience. And that baiting is so that he will somehow miss the torment of the cross. Look at Jesus' response. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He quotes Scripture. Again, stating what the eternal Word of God says. And again, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So, what he's saying in this passage is, for us, follow the Word of God. Even if somebody comes and misquotes the Word of God, study the Word of God to know how to refute that misquoting of Scripture. 
Always depend on that as your guide, not your senses, not what would be easier, not what would seem right in the moment, but what God has revealed. That is the key to navigating life in the way that God would have you navigate it. The final statement of this passage is verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. God provided for Jesus' needs right when he needed it. How many times do we find that we try to go ahead of God and find a solution apart from God, sometimes even contrary to what God has said, and then it becomes abundant that God would have provided for us had we just waited a little bit. We need to resist that temptation. We need to resist Satan. James tells us this, submit yourselves therefore to God. So that's the obedience part. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's exactly what happens with Jesus. He resists, the devil goes away. Now he will return to tempt Jesus further. But resisting Satan in the power of the Spirit, by the power of God's Word, is the key to resisting temptation. Another passage 1 John, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. In the time in which Peter wrote this, lions were a real danger to people who were walking through the wilderness. A hungry lion roaring meant death. And so here is Satan being compared to this powerful beast. And it goes on to say, seeking someone to devour. But then we find this promise in verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Jesus resisted Satan, his temptations, those things that he attempted to do in order to disqualify Jesus. Let me encourage you this morning Follow Jesus. Follow His truth. Follow His word. Follow His will. Resist temptation. Resist the tempter, and He will flee from you. May God teach us all to pursue godly obedience that depends on God rather than our own strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder that it is to us that we are to be followers of God, that we are to resist temptation and fully and wholeheartedly follow Jesus.